<laughs> Thank you, Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. We are all doing the book of Revelation, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. As usual, we'll use the chat box whenever you have questions or you want to answer. You're most welcome to use the chat box or you can unmute yourself and you can ask the questions. Uh, we are looking at the sounding the seven trumpets. And uh, I hope you all had some time to go through chapter 11. So we are in between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is yet to be blown. And what we are seeing now is in between sixth and seventh trumpet. If you have gone through uh, chapter 11, you will find the story about two witnesses. This is one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire book. Uh, the reason why we say it is one of the most difficult passages because there are so many symbols symbols from the Old Testament history as well as from the prophetic books. So it makes all the more complicated. Keep this in mind that we are not reading a narrative. We are not reading a historical book. For that matter, we are not even reading a prophetic book. We are reading apocalyptic literature. Keep this in mind. Because if we are going to read apocalyptic literature, the way we read prophetic books, the way we read your poem, the poetry or the narrative will go wrong. So you should keep this in mind. We are reading a particular type of genre, the apocalyptic literature. And symbols are important in the apocalyptic literature and that is where we struggle. As I told you, the symbols that we find in chapter 11 are taken from both Old Testament history as well as prophecy because uh, we find references like we find temple and the altar. It's uh, of course from the Old Testament history, both the temple and the altar. And we find references to Moses and Elijah and we find references to the wild olive trees and the lampstand, of course, from the prophetic book of Zechariah. And we find references to plagues sent upon Pharaoh, we see in the uh, book of Exodus. And we find references uh, to the tyrant predicted by Daniel, a dictator, uh, predicted by Daniel, of course, from the book of Daniel. And then we have Sodom and Egypt. We have Jerusalem. Now, these are the symbols that are there. Now, how do we interpret these symbols? That's going to be the challenge. It is not impossible to interpret these symbols, but we need to have an open mind. 
we have learned certain things and we should not bring those things into this chapter. We should have an open mind, think about it, and then see how best we could interpret this chapter. It's, it is a challenging chapter, no doubt about it. We will not be able to cover more verses today. The idea is not to cover the chapter, but at least try wrestle with this chapter and try to find out who are these two witnesses. Because if we can find those two witnesses, we, to a great extent, will be able to solve the problem in this chapter 11. We can say one thing with confidence. That is, the people of God, we see the people of God as bearing faithful testimony but also has suffering, pain, and persecution, humiliation, and disgrace. If you, have, if you have been exposed to the teachings that where you will be plucked out of this planet Earth and you will be shielded from trials and tribulations, probably you will struggle with the teaching. But this book doesn't say that we will be plucked out from this planet Earth and we'll be shielded from trials and tribulations. Rather, it says the people of God will be faithful till the end and they will suffer pain. They will suffer persecution. They will suffer humiliation. They will suffer disgrace, but they will triumph in the end. That's what uh, this chapter says. So the people of God are not delivered from martyrdom or from death. They are not delivered. At least this passage doesn't teach us. Or for that matter, the scripture doesn't teach us. Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. So this passage doesn't say that. So martyrdom and death is part of Christian living. So we, with this as a background, we will try to we will struggle. We will try to figure out how to understand this chapter. I said we are reading apocalyptic literature. Since we are reading apocalyptic literature, now the challenge for us is to discriminate between what is to be understood literally and what is to be understood symbolically. What is to be understood literally, whether temple, altar, whether we are going to take it as literally or we are going to take symbolically. That will be the challenge. Sodom and Egypt, are we going to take it literally or are we going to take symbolically. So that will be the challenge for us and we should keep this in mind. That will be our challenge and you, we should keep in this mind as we go through the verses. Are we interpreting this literally or are we interpreting it symbolically? Once we understand that this is an apocalyptic literature, there are many symbols and they don't literally represent what they say. So once we understand that basic principle, probably we'll be able to uh, 
interpret, interpret this passage to some extent. It is not that we'll be able to say with confidence, I'm only going to give you inputs and it is left to each one of us as to how we understand this chapter. I'm not going to impose my views. I'm going to give different views. And once you understand this is apocalyptic literature, it is literally, it is not possible to interpret. So it has to be symbolically. Once you understand that, then if it is symbolically, then what does this symbol represent? That will be the challenge for us. This, uh, this chapter is going to be challenging for us. So we go to verse one. Uh, Revelation 11, one says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. Now, what is the significance of measuring the temple of God? What is the significance of measuring the temple of God? Measuring the courts of God's house was one way of praising the brilliance of the building because the building has been built for the glory of God. So just measuring the temple is basically to talk about the magnificence. And ultimately it is all about the creator God to whom the temple was built. That is the significance of measuring because we find this in the Old Testament in Psalm 48, 12 to 13, it says walk about Zion go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her, view her citadels that you may tell of them to the next generation. It's, it's not the building, it's all about in whose praise, in whose honor the temple has been built. We also find in Zechariah 2, 1 and 2, then I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. How should we take John's statement when he says that he was given a measuring rod and told to measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers? How should we take this? Because Revelation 11.1 1 says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. To evaluate the spiritual condition of the people, of the worshippers. you... Yes, Pastor. Yes. How, so when we do a literal reading, what Pastor said is to evaluate the spiritual condition. Yes. But if you do a literal reading, how do you measure worshippers? We can only count worshippers. 
if you are going to do a literal reading, it is impossible to measure the worshippers. How are you going to do it? But it is about the spiritual condition of the people. This verse certainly cannot refer to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. The reason being, we know that John wrote Revelation sometime in the 90s. And if you study the history, by 90s, the temple was lying in ruins. In other words, in, in AD 70, the city was destroyed by the Roman armies under Titus. That is in AD 70, the temple was destroyed. So when John was writing this, literally there was no temple. The temple was in ruins. So it does, so it does not refer to the temple literally because the temple was not there. It was, it was in ruins. So again, as I said, you cannot measure the worshippers. We can count the worshippers. We cannot measure. So what we can say is John is using symbolic language and speaks of the temple not as a building but as God's people. When he's saying, I was given a measuring rod and was told go and measure the temple of God, he's not literally talking about the temple of God and the altar with his worshippers but he's talking a symbol, he's using a symbolic language referring to God's people. And for us, it is not very difficult to accept this symbolic language. Uh, as, as Pastor Prem said that uh, normally measuring is done to build and repair. Uh, that's the reason you go measure but John is given a measuring rod basically to restore and revive the church. That's the reason he was given the measuring rod to restore and revive the uh, church. So it is, it is kind of a spiritual language that he's using and basically it represents the Christian church. Uh, Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, he said, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 6.16, What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So, when we say in Revelation 11.1, 1, the temple and the altar and the worshippers, they all represent the, represent the church. It is not very difficult to accept that kind of an interpretation. Because in 1 Peter 2.5, Peter says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in Ephesians 2.21, Paul says, In him, the whole building is joined together 
and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. It's talking about the believers. It's talking about the church. Uh, thus the whole church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Whole church, not one church, church all over the world is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So we go to the next verse, Revelation 11:2. but exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. He's, he's told specifically, you need to measure only the inner court. You should not measure the outer court because it has been given to the Gentiles. So basically the language, the kind of language is using here is not the way we find Jews and Gentiles. That's not the language he's using here. He's talking about the persecutors of the church as Gentiles. The persecutors of the church who will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Um, they are not only permitted, God has not only permitted them to destroy the church, but they are also permitted to oppress, to persecute the church for a limited time. It's been allowed this persecution, this oppression will continue, will continue because they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. It is not the first time a sanctuary has been trampled on. This is not the first time because in Isaiah 63, 18, it says, for a little while, your people possessed your holy place, but now our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. The ultimately, the goal of the pagans is to desecrate the temple. That will be the ultimate goal. To destroy the temple will be the ultimate goal of the pagans. But uh, here, basically, it's talking about only the outer court, because only the outer court will be trampled. Uh, Basically, it's talking about, though the entire temple was in ruins, basically this was talking about some kind of a pagan spiritual domination over the church. The church is supposed to be Israel's spiritual remnant. The church is supposed to be like that. So there's some kind of pagan domination over this remnant group. It could also refer to the Holy Land, it could refer to Jewish people, it could refer to a lack of a temple you, it, you can make, but generally it's talking about the pagan domination of the temple. In other words, the pagan will have an upper hand. Uh, it, it's talking about some kind of impurity, some kind of compromise, uh, that's what this verse refers to. We go to verse 3, Revelation 11, 3, it says, And I will appoint my two witnesses, 
and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. From where do we get 1260 days? From where do we get 1260 days? See, 42 months into 30 days. Okay, so from where do we get this? 42 months. Three and a half years. So yeah, yeah, three and a half years. From where do we get this reference? Daniel, book of Daniel. Da yes, it's from the Daniel. Uh, this is the traditional apocalyptic term of Gentile domination. Uh, derived from the book of Daniel. Now, if you follow, if you follow the church history carefully, uh, the church was desecrated by Antiochus IV, if you read the history, from 167 BC to 164 BC, the church was desecrated. The, that's what we call as abomination that desolates. Uh, the church, the, sorry, the temple had been desecrated. Uh, the inner sanctuary had been desecrated during the time of Antiochus IV. Uh, this reference of 1260 days, we get from Daniel 9.26, after 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. Daniel 12, 7 says, the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and I heard him swear, swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times and half a time, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. Now, there's so much about the numbers in uh, Hebrew language. Uh, I will not get into it. Uh, there, are, there are so many references known as triangular numbers, rectangular numbers, uh, so much of things. We don't have to get into those uh, details. Uh, so this period of 42 months, basically which translate into 1,260 days. It is during this period, the two witnesses exercise their ministry. Now, how did we get that 1,260 days? Just by working out 360 days in a year. It is not 364, you work out 360 days, so you get three and a half years, you get 1,260 days. Now, we need to uh, keep in mind, this is a symbolic representation of time. It's not literal. So with this aspect, we should keep in mind, it is not the length of time, but the kind of time. We cannot take a calendar and we say that it'll last only for three and a half years, 
we will start counting the days 1,206. No, it's not that. It is, it's not talking about the length of time, but the kind of uh, time. Now, what does sackcloth represent? And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. What does sackcloth represent? Fasting, Pastor. What? Uh, fasting. fasting. Uh, little more. Fasting for what? Repentance. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is the dress for mourning. It is the dress for repentance. In the Old Testament, basically, it signifies the dress for mourning, as well as for repentance. Uh, they were clothed in sackcloth. Now, why do we need two witnesses? Why do we need uh, two witnesses? In Old Testament also, on two witnesses, uh, they will confirm the uh, case or against the people. Yeah, perfectly right. It's again the Old Testament reference. We go to Deuteronomy 17.6. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. And we also find in Deuteronomy uh, 19.15, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's the reason we have two witnesses in this place. Now, we go to the next verse, Revelation 11.4. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Who are these two witnesses in the Old Testament? Who are these two witnesses in the Old Testament? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Yes, some people say it is Moses and Elijah. Okay. Elijah and Enoch. Elijah and Enoch. Yeah, some people say it is Elijah and Enoch. Uh, who else? Moses and Elijah, Elijah and Enoch. Who else? Because our struggle is with these two witnesses. So we are trying to figure out what does this mean? This is a, this is a ref, yeah, somebody's telling something. Uh, this is a reference uh, taken from the book of Zechariah. Uh, can you see a lampstand here? And can you see a bowl uh, on the top? Can you see two olive trees? 
and there is a channel that's coming from you know from the two channels that are coming from the olive tree but if you read uh, zechariah chapter uh, 4 uh, if you even in the english translations you can read that from the bowl to the uh, each lamp there are seven channels so ultimately there are 49 channels in other words the lamp will burn to its fullest potential. Uh, that is the uh, thing. Uh, we are not getting into those details, but there are two olive trees. There is a lamp stand. Uh, that's what's important for us because Revelation 11.4 says, they are the two olive trees and the two lamp stands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. So we go back to Zechariah to find out who are these two olive trees. So Zechariah 4, 1 to 3 says, Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top, and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Uh, in some of the English translations, you can find seven channels to each of the lamp. Uh, so we, we are trying to figure out because how, how what does John mean when he says two lampstands? So John is at least giving us some clues or he's giving us some hint to the identity of those two witnesses. We are trying to figure out who are these two witnesses so we are trying to figure out from this uh, vision whether we can get any clue. In this particular vision, the entire chapter, if you read Zechariah chapter 4 from verse 1 to 14, if you read, uh, we can clearly say those two olive trees, they represented the king and the priest. And the king, uh, the civic head at that time was Jerubabel, and the priest at that time was Joshua. So it is talking about the king and the priest. Uh, so because in, in chapter, um, in, in Revelation chapter 11, 4, it says they stand before the land of Lord of the earth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth so some people have suggested maybe these two figures represent to Elijah and Enoch because both did not die, they were caught up. So some have suggested this could refer to Elijah and Enoch. Some uh, Jewish people, uh, some Jewish storytellers, they will always bring in Moses. And when they bring in Moses, they refer to Deuteronomy chapter 34, and 
they say that, you know, in 34, it says, no one knows where he was buried. So they refer to that and they say it refers to Moses. But this reference could just mean the church. Uh, if it means the church, the heavenly representatives, church representatives are already there standing before the Lord. So in Zechariah 4.14, it says, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Now, John might try to connect this image of king and the priest with the church. On what basis do we say that? Because Zechariah chapter 4 clearly says these two olive trees uh, represent the uh, civic ruler and the spiritual leader, the king and the priest. So John is basically, is he, is he basically trying to connect the image with the kingdom and priest? Is there any clue in the book of Revelation itself? Uh, in Revelation um, 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So if this is what John means by those two witnesses, and he's using the vision of Zechariah, that's in chapter 4, John is probably alluding to the church. Now, even in Revelation chapter 1, 5 to 6, we saw that to him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power for ever and ever. So in all probability, this is referring, the two witnesses, uh, it refers to the church. With that in our backdrop. Let's go to the next two verses and try to figure out. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Because when we read these verses, the images that come to our mind is obviously it is Elijah and it is Moses, because it's not very difficult to figure out. Um, they shut up the heavens so that it will not rain to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Yes, the images that will come to our mind will be Elijah and, uh, and Moses. Because 2 Kings 1.10, Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Uh, Please uh, note, note this particular aspect. Here in 2 Kings 1.10, 
the fire, uh, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven. And then fire fell from heaven. But in Revelation 11, 5, it says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths. Uh, please uh, note down this difference uh, as we proceed further. Uh, in Exodus 7, 17, it says, this is what the Lord says, by this you will know that I am the Lord with the staff that is in my mind, I'll strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. And in Exodus 7, 20, 21, it says, Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. We also know, because in Revelation 11, 6, it says, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain. Uh, we, we also know Elijah had, did this miracle because in 1 Kings 17, 1, it says, now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Uh, we don't have the reference of three and a half years, but prob according to probable Jewish tradition, this was three and a half years. And that this reference we find in the New Testament, three and a half years. Uh, in the book of James 5.17, it says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and did not rain on the land for three and a half years. This is where we get three and a half years. And even in the gospel, according to Luke, in Luke 4.25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for, shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. So three and a half years correspond to 42 months. So Jewish people were expecting both a new prophet like Moses, and they were also expecting the return of Elijah. Um, now, it is true, this passage, uh, does model, that is Revelation chapter 11, 5 to 6, it does model the two witnesses after Moses and Elijah. It also deliberately modifies the connections. It is true. There's no um, doubt about it. There's no dispute about it, that these verses, they refer to Moses and Elijah, but it modifies the connections. For example, as I said, uh, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 5, fire comes from the witness's mouth. 
rather than from heaven because we saw in in second kings that fire fell from heaven so there is some kind of a modifications in the presentation uh, that's what gives us the clue and that's how we'll try to figure out now this fire coming out from the mouth is also a figurative language for the harsh power of God's word. Uh, that's a figurative language because we find that in the book of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 5.14 it says, therefore this is what the Lord God Almighty says, because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire and these people the wood it consumes now these are the challenges we have this is the information we have uh, it is possible is it possible given john's consistent reinterpretation of traditional jewish symbols elsewhere because John is just reinterpreting the Old Testament symbols that he transforms this traditional Jewish expectation of returning prophets, reapplying it symbolically. In other words, it is not the way we read in the Old Testament. He takes those symbols, makes fresh connections, modifies those connections, and is reapplying. Is it possible? that he's reapplying these symbols to fit the message that he wants to convey to us. Is it possible? Now, we may agree, yes, John is doing it symbolically. I hope up to this, you've, got, you've, you've been following it, uh, because only if you follow it, uh, we can move a little further. Uh, if you have any questions, you can ask before we move further. Okay, if there are no questions, that means John is using the Old Testament symbols and is deliberately is modifying the connections because fire did not come from Elijah's mouth. Fire fell from heaven. So he's deliberately modifying certain connections and he's reapplying it symbolically. Now, if we all have agreed, John is using it in a symbolic way, then the question is, we need to find out uh, what they symbolize. That's very important. If John is using these words uh, symbolically, then it will be helpful unless we determine what they symbolize. Uh, that is another difficult interpretative task in this book. Now, some view them uh, as symbolic for the law and the prophets. They say it refers to the law and the prophets. 
Now others suggest the witnesses are Peter and Paul because both probably were executed at the same time under Nero. Now the problem with Peter and Paul, uh, they were not raised as we see in Revelation chapter 11, 11. These witnesses will come back to life. So Peter and Paul were not raised to life. That is the problem we had. Uh, some people, they point out to the olive trees and they say this symbolizes Israel. Uh, and they say this basically symbolizes two olive trees, Israel and the church. And there are Old Testament references to it, Israel and the church. Because in Jeremiah 11, 6, uh, we find Israel is being called as an olive tree, Jeremiah eleven sixteen. The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form, but with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire and its branches will be broken. Now in Hosea 14, 6, we find his young shoots will grow. His splendor will be um, like an olive tree. His fragrance like a cedar of Lebanon. Now we said this could symbolize Israel and the church. And we have a reference to that in Romans chapter 11, verse 17. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though your wild olive shoot, have been crafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, basically the church. Now, all these uh, explanations appear to be reasonable. So we will dive into the text to find, to see if there is any evidence. Uh, the, these are all views that's coming from few of the scholars, but the most common view or the generally accepted view that these two witnesses, they represent the prophetic witness of the church. Uh, that is the common view. The most common view is that the two witnesses represent the prophetic witness of the church. Uh, we have already seen in Revelation chapter 1, 5 to 6, and Revelation chapter 5, the kingdom, you have been called to be made to be a kingdom and the priest. So this is the common. Now, why do we, why do this, why this appears to be the common view? Uh, because there are various factors that support this interpretation when we say that the two witnesses, they represent the prophetic witness of the church, there are various factors uh, which favors this kind of uh, interpretation rather than uh, Elijah and Moses or Elijah and Enoch. Uh, the various factors, let's see that. Uh, they, they are lampstands. Because they are lampstands, Revelation clearly identifies lampstands as churches. We have seen in chapter one itself, the explanation has been given. 
the lampstands, uh, they refer to church. So as seven lampstands, they represent the entire church, the universal church. So here are the two underlining uh, that is basically talking about the two church as witnesses. So this could this refers to the church. We are trying to find the factors that favor the interpretation of the church. The witness, two witnesses refer to the church. Now, Joshua and Zerubbabel were the high priest and king seeking the restoration of their holy city. If you read the entire chapter, it is, it's about rebuilding the temple. So Joshua and Zerubbabel were given that authority and the power to rebuild the, their holy city. Now, as kingdom and priest, as a kingdom, like believers are called as a kingdom and priest, we are seeking our new Jerusalem. We are waiting for the new Jerusalem. Uh, they prophesy, that is in chapter 10, 11, in 11 verses, verses 3 and 6, uh, basically they prophesy what? They prophesy Christ. What is the message of the Christian church? The message of the Christian church is Jesus Christ, the gospel. Gospel is about Jesus. So they prophesy, basically it is fulfilling the standard Christian mission, the great commission of testifying for Christ. Now in Revelation 19.10 it says, at this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the, test, it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Everything we do is a testimony to Jesus. So that's why we said these two witnesses, it refers to church, and the church has the mandate to fulfill the great commission of testifying for Christ. Now, three and a half years, we should, we should take it as symbolically, not literally, counting it as 42 months or 1,260 days. If you take it symbolically, then uh, it is the symbolic of the entire Christian era. In other words, from the first coming to the second coming. This is the period. It is not just three and a half years. It is the entire uh, period era. Uh, it, is, it, it represents the three and a half years or 1,260 days. It represents a long duration. We are waiting for the second coming. It is talking about the church will triumph in the end. So this time period of three and a half years is symbolic. If you are taking this as symbolic, the time period is also, we take it as uh, symbolic. Uh, now, we are taking different Old Testament prophetic motives, different themes, different symbols from the Old Testament prophet, from prophetic books like such as fire coming from the witness's mouth uh, rather than from heaven. 
John could have easily written fire coming down from heaven, but he, he, he modifies the connection. He says that fire coming from the witness's mouth. So giving us a scope for a broader symbolic interpretation. Uh, now, even this assumption that we say the two witnesses uh, represent the church is debatable. As I told you, that we cannot conclusively say that, but from the text that we have, when we dive into the text, uh, to a great extent, we can say the two witnesses, they represent the church. So the two witnesses being the church is again debatable. We can keep debating. But why we say the church? Because it appears to be the best available option. There are several options as to uh, who these two witnesses represent. But the best available option is the church. Now, those who object to the witnesses being the church, they also have legitimate grounds. It is not that simply they say that, no, these two witnesses, they do not represent um, a church. They have some grounds. Because we see in this chapter, these very two witnesses will be lying in the street for three days. So since they are lying in the street for three days, so they say it does not fit the church. Now, such objections are not unreasonable. We don't have to say that it's unreasonable. But what they presuppose is, now when they say that, we are not saying their objections are unreasonable, but what they presuppose, on what grounds they say, that these two witnesses were killed and their dead bodies were lying on the street. What they're saying is, it, all the details in Revelation's narratives must be read literally. As I told you, this is apocalyptic literature. You cannot read at one place literally and another place symbolically. So we cannot do that. So when they say that these two witnesses, they were killed and their dead bodies were lying on the street for three days, they are reading the passage literally. We, we are trying to read this symbolically. Uh, so we, are, uh, we say that uh, we still feel that these two witnesses represent the church. Now, some people say that since it's two witnesses, it should represent two uh, literal individuals. In other words, two human beings, A and B, or Moses and Elijah, Elijah and Enoch, because it says two witnesses. But in Revelation, it is difficult to apply this kind of an interpretative method, because if you apply in one place this kind of interpretative method, then you cannot choose a different method in, in the next chapter. Because when we come to chapter 12 or 17, uh, we will not say the women in those chapters, uh, they are literal uh, representation. We will not say that. We will take it symbolically. So if you are going to take those figures symbolically, 
there is every reason for us that we should take these figures also symbolically. If somebody is going to do it literal uh, interpretation, then they should follow the literal interpretation all through. And in apocalyptic literature, you will just fail. You cannot literally interpret. Now, if the, if the two witnesses represent the church, uh, then we can take that 1,260 days in one of two ways. One can see here the church's successful end-time witness. In other words, the church will triumph in the end. Uh, we can also take this uh, 1,260 as a symbolic uh, number, uh, not a literal number, but as a symbolic number. But now Revelation is borrowing Daniel's figure, this three and a half years, not to tell us the length of time, but to inform us the kind of time that the era of the church is characterized by great suffering as in Daniel's tribulations. Tribulation. If you read the church history, and if you see the church has been going through tribulation from time to time. So you cannot just uh, put it in a tight jacket and say that this represents 1,260 days. Now, if indeed, Revelation presents the two witnesses as the church. Now, the biblical references, they provide some kind of a pattern for the church's prophetic mission. The church has a prophetic mission. And the church's prophetic mission will be greater than Moses or Elijah's mission. So since the church's prophetic vision, uh, the mission will be greater than Moses and Elijah, you will, come to, you will see uh, in the later chapters, the beast must muster greater forces against the church. The forces of hell cannot prevail. The church will, is the most powerful uh, thing in this world next to heaven, next to God. The church is the most powerful thing in this world. Now, the witnesses are probably two in number for several reasons. I'll quickly um, tell the reasons and I'll end. Now, in the biblical rules of evidence, which we have already seen, a minimum of two witnesses for valid testimony. Now, early Christian witnesses were sent in pairs whenever possible. We see in the book of, in the Gospels. Uh, the reference to Zerubbabel and Joshua in Zechariah 4 demands two representatives. Uh, it doesn't literally mean the two individuals so it means the church. So the fourth reason is, uh, you know, we see a literary contrast with the two evil leaders in chapter 13. Like we find two leaders here, two witnesses here, 
we will also see two evil leaders in chapter 13, one of whom also produces uh, fire. Because in Revelation 13, 13, it says, and it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. This portrait uh, reinforces John's contrast between the church and the world system. Uh, you know, the, the latter holds power to kill God's witnesses. The evil power has that authority to kill God's witnesses, but the witnesses will triumph nevertheless, even through their sacrifice. That's why these two witnesses will be killed, dead bodies will be there, and they'll be resurrected, and they'll be taken to heaven. Basically to say that in the end, the church will triumph. Now, cutting edge witness always demands the threat of suffering and Christian witness and suffering together must precede the end. Cutting edge witness, <clears throat> the best great commission that we can do is one-to-one -one sharing the gospel. That's what's known as cutting edge witness. I can give you several examples as to how uh, people have come to Christ because of this personal evangelism. And they always had a threat. Will this man kill me? Will this man listen to me? Is there any hope in this man? So cutting edge witness always demands the threat of suffering and Christian witness and suffering together must precede the end. We always have the risk when we share the gospel, but there is nothing to replace the personal evangelism. This is a difficult chapter. Uh, whatever I said, I'm not asking you to accept it. I'm only asking you to consider all these points and uh, see how best we can understand the two witnesses. Uh, Pastor Prem, there's somebody in the chat box. Pastor, you connected uh, three and a half years to the Christian era, right? Uh, is it just because of the, uh, like a long time duration or? Uh... Uh, we are, I said, we will not take it uh, uh, literally as three and a half years. It's a Christian era means that from first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. It's a long period, the church history. Yeah, no, uh, so uh, you're saying three and a half years is a long period of time. So we connected to Christian era. Yeah. Okay. okay. Uh, because in the history, if you read the Christian history from time to time, people said, uh, these are the two witnesses. Okay. And uh, you always see that they've gone wrong. Yeah. Uh, there are specific, people have mentioned specific individuals name to say that these are the two witnesses that Revelation speaks about. And uh, it has always proved wrong. So, but definitely the church will triumph in the end. It's difficult for us uh, to accept this because we read it as two witnesses. When we read it as two witnesses, in our mind, uh, the, 
the thing that comes to our mind is it must be two individuals. Uh, so when we say that this represents the church, uh, this is the best uh, interpretation that's available to us as of today, if you are saying that this is the best uh, interpretation that's available to us, which we can support with biblical references because of Revelation chapter 1, 5 to 6, and Revelation chapter 5, verse 10, where the saints are called to be a kingdom and priest, royal priesthood. Yes, it talks about uh, both the church, uh, the church and the, the priest and the kingship. Thank you. Anybody else has any question? Okay, it's a difficult chapter. Thank you for uh, bearing with me. Uh, it has been a challenge for me also, uh, but I'm sure God will continue to uh, uh, teach us. Uh, we should not look for speculation in the book of Re Revelation. God has given this book for our edification, for our encouragement. And these, uh, this was written to the persecuted churches, the seven churches. They were undergoing a difficult time. So it, this book was a great encouragement to them. And because it is God's word, it will always encourage people at the right time. For it's a great book even for us. It encourages us because the church will prevail. The great commission will be fulfilled. Shall we read this verse together as our closing prayer? Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Glorious Father, we thank you for this time. Oh God, we struggle to understand the word of God. We pray, Lord, whatever we have studied, the Spirit of God will help us, will help us to understand the right meaning of the word of God. Strengthen us, encourage us, Guide us, O Lord, I bless each and every one with good health, O Lord. Above, Father, there's so much of uncertainty around us. There's pandemic around us. I pray you will protect each and every one of us, O Lord. Let no one be infected with this COVID-19, O Lord. Let there be a supernatural covering over each and every one. We pray for Sunita's mom, oh Lord, as she's struggling with COVID-19, we ask for your grace, we ask for your intervention. We pray for recovery of the people, oh Lord, who have come out of this COVID-19. Let your grace and let your strength be available. Lord, bless us together, oh Lord. Be with us through the rest of the week. We give everything into your hand. We bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ unfailing love of our Heavenly Father and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit remain with each one of us now and forevermore. Amen.